Welcome to the System Speak podcast. If you would like to support our efforts at sharing our story, fighting stigma about dissociative identity disorder, and educating the community and the world about trauma, please go to our website at www.systemspeak.org and there is a button for donations where you can offer a one-time donation to support the podcast or become an ongoing subscriber. We so appreciate the support, the positive feedback, and you sharing our podcast with others. We are all learning together. Thank you. very excited about what you have to offer and what you're going to share with us. Oh, likewise. Um, very much admire your work. Very excited to learn about the Plural Positive Positivity Conference earlier in the year and your desire and your group's desire to narrow the gap between clinicians and lived experience. I think it's a very exciting time. And I know you've interviewed a number of um, ISSTD people on your podcast like Rich Fetz and Peter Barak's. So I think it's a really fertile time to be connecting. It's amazing. I, that's very gracious. Thank you for being with us. Not at all. No. To start with, go ahead and just introduce yourself a little bit. Sure. Well, my name's uh, Pam Stavropoulos. I'm the head of research with Blue Knot Foundation in Sydney, Australia. Blue Knot Foundation is the peak sort of body for representing the interests of adult survivors of complex trauma in its many forms. We used to be called Adult Surviving Child Abuse, ASCA, and the first set of guidelines that we produced in 2012, of course now they're updated in 2019, which we'll talk about, um, but the first set came out under the name of ASCA, uh, whereas now we've had a name change, Blue Knot Foundation. So I'm head of research there, working, yes, on the research side, and I'm also a clinician. I have a small private practice um, with complex trauma clients. How did you get involved with complex trauma? You know, that's a fascinating story, Emma. Um, I um, connected with Blue Knot Foundation, which was then ASCA. I think it was around 2010. And I was um, hired to, to do a, a research project, a small research project. And to my surprise and shock, I realised there were not guidelines at that time for treating complex trauma as distinct from single incident PTSD. So I said to Cathy, you know, it'd be an e easier to do this if there were some guidelines in the area. And she said, well, why don't we, you know, apply for a variation on the grant and, and, and write some guidelines ourselves? So that's literally what happened. And, of course, much of the research comes from, from your country. There's been a hell of a lot on complex trauma over the years. But um, it hadn't really been put together in guideline format um, until relatively recently. And, of course, our, our first guidelines were 2012. That was also the same year that the expert 
consensus guidelines for treatment of complex PTSD came out, of course. So they were being released at the same time as, as our first set of guidelines. But the yeah, the background to, to me being in this field and, and the guidelines in Australia was literally at the time, quite recently, um, they all the great research and clinical work in complex trauma had not been formalised into guidelines. So we've come a long way since then. It's amazing. It is amazing. And I know that the community is super excited about it. And we've already had Kathy on and talked to her and shared a little bit about sort of her background and how she got involved. And so I'm super excited that you're going to share with us a little bit about the research and the guidelines themselves. Where do you sure. even want to start with all that? Well, look, maybe we can start with, um, Kathy said, oh, maybe it's time to update the guidelines. And I thought, oh, is it time already? Because we know, well, time's interesting in itself. It goes very quickly sometimes. Um, but it was six and a half, seven years since 2012. And a lot had changed. There's a lot that stays the same too. Um, so maybe the first step is, is to just sketch out what seem to have changed since 2012, why the landscape's different and what some of the main themes of the current update are. Yeah, and then I can maybe fill in some of the detail around the, the research themes and, and we can to and fro about that. But I guess some of the main changes since 2012, and this one's very, very recent, is that there actually is a formal diagnosis now of complex PTSD, CPTSD. Now, diagnosis, of course, is not the be-all and end-all. It's not the only lens by any means through which to view complex trauma, but it does represent a significant achievement of many people, including and notably, of course, Judith Herman, who've tried over many years to get this diagnosis up, and it now is. Um, it will be in the, it is the, you know, newer iteration of the ICD-11, the International Classification of Diseases, um, announced its release um, in June of 2018, I think it was, and the diagnosis will come um, into being soon. Um, unlike the DSM, of course, there's no sort of freestanding complex trauma, uh, complex PTSD diagnosed in the DSM, but there is a dissociative subtype. And I remember Christine Courtois saying at the time that the diagnosis of, of PTSD is becoming more complex. So there is a widespread recognition of the need to take account of the more um, extensive impacts of complex trauma, the distinctive features of complex trauma um, and the treatment implications. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, complex trauma, as I said, it, obviously it isn't the be-all and end-all. Robin Shapiro said a long time ago, um, there's more to trauma than PTSD. There's also more to complex trauma than complex PTSD. So one of the problematics of it is that um, to meet the criteria of CPTSD, people still need to meet criteria for standard PTSD, you know, the familiar features that we know of, the hypervigilance and the intrusion and the numbing and so on. But, of course, many people with complex trauma actually don't um, meet the criteria of, of standard PTSD. So it's going to leave some people out. So there are problematics around it, but I think it is important that, that it does exist. And, um, you know, Judith Herman has talked about this. She talked about how the attempts to get that diagnosis up for DSM, excuse me, in um, for DSM four, and it actually passed the field trials, and there was great hope for DSM four even. 
that CPTSD would, um, you know, become a, um, a diagnosis in its own right, but it, it did not happen. And Judith Herman, when she talks about this in the forward to a book that came out in 2009, she said the message that, that came to them, came back, was that complex trauma or the proposed CPTSD diagnosis involves so many different criteria and impacts you know it could be schizoaffective it could be depression it could be anxiety there's just so much going on and judith herman's point was but that's exactly the point you know we need a diagnosis that can re you know represent the syndrome of impacts that complex trauma represents so yeah look i think on the one hand it's a major achievement on the other hand it's obviously um, not, not enough by any means, but that's probably the first change and, and um, since 2012. Um, a second one for us in Australia, but um, also with international implications, of course, is our Royal Commission into Institutional Responses for Child Sex Abuse. Now, that's very interesting because when I uh, presented the 2012 guidelines at the ISSTD conference in Long Beach um, in Los Angeles in 2012, um, Dr. Kathy Kesselman, who, who now is the president of Blue Knot Foundation, unfortunately was unable to be there, uh, was unable to travel at that time. So I, I just went across and presented the guidelines um, and literally had up on a PowerPoint slide, you know, where is the impetus coming? Where is the next movement um, for complex trauma to be taken seriously? Because Judith Herman made the point long ago that for Trauma is extremely confronting in all sorts of ways. And to get to really stay in the public consciousness, because it does slip in and out of awareness over time, when we look, a lot of this stuff isn't new. I mean, it's it's validated in different ways now with the neuroscience and so on. But people have known about complex trauma for a long time in the field. And yet it does, you know, it has slipped from public view. So this is um, Judith Herman's point that to be, um, you know, firmly lodged in public consciousness, it needs to be linked to a political movement, which is a fascinating point to make, you know, isn't it, Emma? Because we often have these compartmentalisation, you know, this is politics, this is clinical work, this is, you know. Um, but, you know, Bessel van der Kolk said a similar thing in his best-selling book, um, the body keeps the score. He says people will sometimes come up to him and say, why are you talking about politics when you're talking about trauma? And he says, because you have to. Um, so that was very powerful when I read Trauma and Recovery, you know, the landmark text of the early 90s by Judith Herman, um, you know, all this exciting material, even at the time, even before the, the neuroscience stuff was starting to break, to read what she said, that, that, you know, don't think that just because all this information's available, that, it, that it's necessarily going to um, be taken up and, and, and advanced and it needs to be linked to wider issues. So that's why when I was presenting the guidelines the first time, it's like surely we couldn't lose all this amazing information, but if it does need to be linked to wider public consciousness, where is that going to come from? And, in fact, the Royal Commission in Australia um, was announced a very short time, about a month and a half after after that. So that's, that's our, our movement um, that's the vehicle through which public awareness has massively um, increased since 2012, which is fantastic. Now, of course, whether the recommendations of the Royal Commission, which went on for five years, which was comprehensive, which took enormous amounts of testimony and, um, you know, inquiry into so many mainstream institutions of society, not conspicuously, of course, the institution of the family, as we're all very aware, which is the main sort of context in which um, trauma frequently occurs, complex trauma, but nevertheless, 
nevertheless, um, it's it alerted the public, the Royal Commission, to the fact that, you know, complex trauma is perpetrated, you know, in the heart of mainstream societal institutions that we've been encouraged to trust in, you know, the church, the, you know, um, local clubs, um, you know, all sorts of, of areas throughout society, sporting clubs, educational institutions. There's really no institution in which, you know, which is immune from the possibility and actuality of complex trauma being perpetrated. So whatever people do with that information, it's out there now, and that's a major shift. A third major shift, um, and again, I'll sort of fill in the detail later if, if we have time, is the changed treatment landscape. It's now a very dynamic field, of course. There's so many different approaches in, in therapy broadly, not, not just trauma therapy. Um, and that's very challenging. It's very exciting. How do we make sense of the diversity of approaches that are out there? Are they suitable for complex trauma treatment? If so, how do we integrate them? And it's challenging, of course, in terms of even how to represent them, because when we talk about traditional treatments or alternative treatments or mainstream treatments, that's very contingent on where we're coming from and an approach which may be traditional in one area um, may be you know not at all in another so yeah a third theme has really been to try and make sense of, of the congestion of approaches that are out there um, you know the explosion of, of in access to, to the internet that people are going online to you know find out all sorts of things what challenges is that pose to the complex trauma field and the other main piece, I guess, um, is the dissociation piece. It's not really a piece, it's, it's prevalent, it's, it's huge in its own right, but there's much more in the uh, the updated version of, of the guidelines on dissociation and the major need, you know, the great importance of every clinician knowing about dissociation, not just the most severe forms of it, which is often what people think about and think, oh, we don't need to worry about other forms, but it, it does take many forms and obviously we're going to talk about this and um, clinicians really need to be aware of, of that. So that was another impetus for the guidelines and, and I guess one other change that's, that's not a postscript but that was announced just in time before we went to press to be able to include was the, the Jenny Haynes legal case. And Jenny Haynes, of course, um, experiences DID and took her father to court and her dissociative self-states, her alters, we can talk about the language, uh, actually testified, you know, in court that was part of the grounds on which her father was convicted of, um, you know, the massive abuse that, that generated her, her DID and, and received an extremely lengthy prison sentence. So to have a legal validation, now, again, we're not saying that, you know, medico-legal axes are the only ones we take notice of, not at all, but it's been difficult enough to get, um, you know, sexual assault cases into the courts at all for all the reasons that we know about. So to have that recognition of the DID diagnosis um, validated in that way by a judge within the judicial system, and this is very groundbreaking stuff. So in many ways we are in quite different terrain, I think. It's different than any ever before. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely it is, yeah. So they have um, ballooned in size. <laughs> Maybe not everybody will be happy about that. We have now have 44 guidelines to take account of, you know, new themes and more nuance. And I won't obviously go through all the guidelines, but there's half a dozen I wanted to quickly reference. The first one, a new one, guideline six, is about the importance of, of every clinician knowing the core dissociative symptoms. Namely, you know, depersonalisation, 
that sense of feeling disconnected from, you know, oneself or distance between thinking and feeling. There's different definitions of that. Derealisation, you know, when external environment um, we're estranged from. Um, amnesia, identity confusion and identity alteration. Now, of course, if all those five symptoms are present, and we'll also talk about the problematics of the word symptoms, I'm sure, but if all those five are present, we're in the land of DID. But, of course, those symptoms can occur in varied combinations. Um, there's many different dissociative disorders which clinicians need to know about and mostly don't because dissociation still isn't on the curricula of, of most um, psychology and psychotherapy courses. And there's also, you know, what we call subclinical forms of dissociation which don't meet the criteria for disorder, but which nevertheless, you know, imp may impair people's quality of life. So if clinicians aren't able to detect or at least have on their radar the possibility of dissociation, there's a great chance that, you know, it won't be detected and, and that's going to really interfere with appropriate treatment. Um, the other thing, of course, is that dissociation, which is basically, and again, there's lots of definitions and, and different views, and we can talk about that too, but, you know, at a very basic level, it's disconnection from the present moment. Um, and, of course, if that occurs, that's going to be um, severely inhibiting of therapeutic benefit. If a person's persistently dissociating or even, you know, intermittently dissociating at different points and the clinician isn't aware of that, and, of course, the client themselves may not be aware of that. That's going to really um, impede the therapy. So it's very important that we're all aware of that possibility. Um, Daniel Siegel, of course, has famously talked about mind sight, you know, the ability to, to, to focus and be present and so on. And I think it's Cathy Steele, who I think I'm correct in saying, coined the, the phrase mind flight, which is, of course, what dissociation is so you're talking about different things here um christine fawn has written about this as well so it's really important that that we all know about dissociation what to look for uh and of course it's harder to detect we, we all know about hyper arousal which is generally more visible you know there's often a, a change in the person's um you know demeanor and skin color voice tone delighted pupils looking agitated we can all sense something's happened for a person when there's that response but dissociation of course and again it's complicated when i say it's the shutdown response there's other forms and it's possible to be dissociated while being behaviorally active but in contrast to the general hyper arousal hypo arousal is 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 less visible um, and a person may just look as if they've hesitated or had a moment or not concentrating and they may be we're not saying everybody who has a mild attention lapse you know is dissociative but it could also be indicative of an, of a response that, that's regularly triggered that that the, the client um, is experiencing their daily life to their detriment and that therapists aren't even looking out for so it's just so important um, so that's yeah guideline six um, then there's guideline 19 which is attuned to and integrate diverse um, approaches, sorry, diverse interventions and treatment approaches within a phased model of treatment. And again, I can fill in the detail around that because that's a fascinating change. Um, or maybe I'll say something briefly on that. With the first uh, guidelines in 2012, we could, um, there, there weren't many challenges to the phased treatment model really. 
Um, it was almost like two ships. I mean, complex trauma people are doing phase treatment and many other people in the sort of single incident trauma are doing exposure therapies and there's not much connection between the approaches. But more recently, there's been a challenge to the phase treatment model, which um, we needed to take account of in the guidelines. And, and the short answer is, I think um, the challenge is very problematic, um, but it did need to be taken account of. So definitely I'll say something a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, so phase treatment, I, th I think we're still endorsing in, in a nutshell, but that doesn't mean that we don't necessarily integrate, you know, where we responsibly can diverse approaches within a phase model, which may be able to safely accelerate treatment. But anyway, we can come back to that. So that's guideline 19. Um, guideline 20 is ensure all treatment modalities are dissociation-informed as well as trauma-informed. So... As you can tell, this the importance of dissociation. Many people would now say they were trauma-informed in their modalities, and, of course, there's no one complex trauma treatment, but it's still possible for even otherwise good therapies to not be aware of or take account of the dissociative response. So, And, in fact, um, EMDR is a very good example of a very well-evidenced and very... Um, you know, rightly respected and widely utilised modality. But um, as Francine Shapiro said in what, of course, unfortunately will be her last contribution to the field, she established, as she said in, in the recent iteration of um, her book on NEMDR that came out in 2018, that if clinicians aren't well-versed in and experienced in and understand dissociative disorders, utilising standard EMDR protocols can be very problematic. She specifically cautioned against that. Um, and, of course, there are varieties of EMDR now that do take account of complex trauma. This is, you know, the field is, is moving all the time. People like Annabelle Gonzalez, um, Sandra Paulson, um, there's many people now, Laurel Parnell, attachment-focused psychotherapy, EMDR therapy, which is specifically more around, you know, and rebuilding disrupted attachment and, and resource installation and so on. So it, that's an important point, I think. Even within particular approaches that are otherwise very good, not everybody within the field is dissociation-informed. So that's that's a key point to sort of point out. Whatever approach we're using, we need to make sure that it's dissociation-informed as well as generally trauma-informed. Um, another one guideline is the importance of updating our understanding for memory. Now, we've produced a quite separate publication. I won't say quite separate, it's very relevant but we haven't um, reproduced a lot of the material we've done on memory in these updated guidelines but we've got the links for people to go to that publication but basically um, it's very very important of course that that every clinician understands the distinction between explicit memory which is largely conscious largely verbalizable um, it goes under lots of names, doesn't it? You know, narrative, autobiographical, semantic, declarative. It can be very confusing, but basically explicit is, is verbalisable and conscious. And then, then there's um, implicit memory, which is largely non-conscious and not verbalised. Um, these are the um, 
it's a distinction between the what is it the the VAMs and SAMs. I think is it John Arden or someone has said the verbally accessible and the situationally accessible. So implicit memory, and there are many forms of that, and it's a complex topic. But but basically, this is well, these different types of procedural memory in the body. You know, riding a bike, remembering how to ride a bicycle without necessarily having to consciously focus on that. Um, but in terms of traumatic memory, traumatic memory is a particular form of implicit memory. And it has particular features. So clinicians need to know there's a lot of um, misinformation now still around memory, uh, but memory is not unitary. It does take different forms. It is perfectly possible to forget deep trauma. And, and in fact, many, many do. That is itself a survival mechanism. Um, you know, the whole discussion around recovered memory, um, which is, a you know, people forget and recall often with situational triggers years later traumatic events that that's been shown and established with, with the holocaust with, with veterans not just with survivors of child sexual abuse which is where the debates tended to be you know this is a this is how the mind works off and under extreme stress so that basic distinction between implicit and explicit memory is very important and just the last couple i was going to particularly mention before we get on to the research side uh, misconceptions about did yeah, that's, that's very common, despite the very strong evidence base, despite the fact that there are now neuropsychological studies that have compared the resting and activated brain states of people with DID and DID simulators and have shown them to be different. You can distinguish between the different brain patterns if that's the evidence people want to look at. I mean, DID is a legitimate diagnosis and yet it's still dogged by controversy, quote-unquote, by a lot of myth-making, um, you know, that it's all theatrogenic, it's made up, it's therapist-implanted, it's culturally specific to the United States, it's the same as BPD, you name it, there's a myth out there. So what um, myself was very fortunate to be involved in and, and, and Bethany Brand and some of your Key people in the trauma field produced an article that we've provided a link for in the guidelines on, um, it's called Separating Fact from Fiction. And we go through about half a dozen of these key myths as clearly as we can. Myth one, and then show the evidence of why it is a myth. Myth two, myth three. So that's that's the, the key one, I guess. Not every not every clinician is going to read these guidelines and will treat DID, but they do need to know that it's a legitimate diagnosis and... Um, yeah, and how to how to respond to the misinformation that's still generated. Yeah, and I suppose just one other one I'll mention before getting onto the research is the distinction between getting better and feeling better. I mean, that's that comes from Richard Cluft, who of course has done an enormous amount to contribute in, in to the field and has been, you know, very pioneering. Um, if someone's been dissociative and start to recover the capacity to feel, if the dissociative barriers start to dissolve. Uh, it's, it's, of course, quite likely that the feelings are going to be very challenging, very unpleasant, maybe very scary. And this is precisely the time when a, when a client, you know, when they're getting starting to break down the, or dissolve the dissociation, panics, feels terrible, wants to stop therapy, thinks that it's all gone wrong. And if a therapist doesn't understand that distinction and is able to work with it and, and reassure the client, this is not a, a regressive step and it's certainly something that can be managed clinically, but, but people can panic when um, feeling starts to be recovered um, rather than realising that, yeah, getting better doesn't necessarily mean feeling better in the first instance. Um, anyway, so we could maybe talk about that. So there, 
you know, half a dozen guidelines I'd just immediately point to that, that are perhaps a bit different than the previous ones. Um, and I'm certainly happy to go through the, maybe I'll just give you the chapter heading. So the, the first part of the, of the guidelines are the guidelines themselves, you know, one, two, three. I should also say we've produced two other sets of guidelines on competencies, like what do therapists need, what are the skills that therapists need to work in this area. Um, and they're important. That's a short separate set, freely available on our website. We can talk about that. But what's interesting is that a lot of otherwise diverse therapies don't make a number of assumptions often about a coherent, continuous subjectivity that isn't applicable, certainly, with many forms of dissociation. And this has very real treatment implications. For example, it's standard in many counselling um, approaches to encourage a client to use I statements quite quickly, you know, owning one's experience. But for a client, and even for many, many of us, and we'll talk about probably in a minute, the model of the mind, um, it may not be that we experience ourselves um, at all or in that moment as an integrated, coherent being. So we have to work differently in, in many ways um, than standard uh, commonsensical quote-unquote notions of of what good therapy is like. So that's a separate set of guidelines um, and another set on, got so many guidelines in <laughs> But you know, I won't go on about that. But we have two other sets that are that in some ways quite basic and shorter that, that people may want to look at as well. But in the updated guidelines that we're talking about today, um, so the first section is the guidelines themselves and the second section is the research base, which is the same format as 2012. So we've got five chapters. Um, the first is understanding complex trauma and the implications for treatment. So that looks at the CPTSD diagnosis, also the limits of that the extensive impacts on self-conception, relationships with others, you know, views about the world, ability to self-regulate, you know, complex trauma, what it, what it looks like. Um, and I remember Christine Courtois saying it's not only that the self is unregulated, it's, it's often un, unrecognised, which again gets back to the problematics of, of I statements. Um, so looking at shame, which has been described as a core affect of, of complex trauma, um, critiquing some common sense understanding, understandings of resilience, that's become a bit of a buzzword, resilience, and it's very important, of course, to be celebrating strengths. But it can um, mean that, that clinicians are insufficiently attuned to the difficulties of the subjective experience of a client. I mean, it's perfectly possible as we know in our field, to tick all the boxes of, of looking as if we're functioning overall. But the whole point about dissociation is is the separation of different parts, you know, the disconnections and the lack of co-consciousness. So might, someone may be functioning very well in their work, you know, have a relation, have relationships, um, you know, be earning money, um, and yet their subjective experience is, is deeply um, in, impaired. And it's very hard for people, of course, for all of us to present vulnerability. So if a therapist is just happily endorsing all the positives of, oh, you know, being a resilient person, um, that it, people can miss, clinicians can miss where a client's really still struggling. So... Um, yeah, a lot of stuff in, in Chapter 1 on complex trauma. Second chapter is squarely on dissociation. It's called What is Dissociation and Why Do We Need to Know About It? Um, and obviously we could have whole seminars on that. I'm, I'm thinking one way of looking at it is, is Rich Shafetz's comment in his great 2015 book, Intensive Psychotherapy for Persistent Dissociative Disorders, and I know you interviewed him very recently, when he says, think about 
um, not about dissociative disorders in the first instance. Dissociation is not mainly about that. It's about how the mind copes with the unbearable. So that um, is, a, is a good rule of thumb for us in the field and it's a very empathic one too, rather than immediately going to the notion of disorder. Dissociation as a response is highly protective in the first instance. And with complex trauma, of course, the difficulty is that if the mind becomes organised around dissociation as an as a almost default response, which is frequently, as we know, the product of severe um, childhood trauma experiences, um, it becomes problematic like all defence mechanisms. So dissociation has a number of forms, many of us would say. The problem, you know, if we're going to say the problem, quote-unquote, is when the dissociative response is persistently activated for defensive purposes um, in, in childhood. So... Um, it, it's, it's really very interesting that, that we know through attachment theory, through many approaches now, the vital importance of a child connecting um, to a caregiver for, for, for survival. And John Bowlby talked about this. He talked about defensive exclusion. He didn't use the term dissociation. And that's fascinating too. You know, Elizabeth Howell and, and Sheldon Itchkowitz have recently released a book, actually have released one since then, but I think it was 2016, on this called The Dissociative Mind in, in Psychoanalysis. And they talk about... Um, yeah, well, a number of contributors to the book talk about, you know, a previous generation of, of clinicians and researchers in the field were really talking about dissociation in different terms. Winnicott would be another example. But, but the point being, um, whatever we're talking about, is the need for the child to dissociate what threatens the attachment bond. So it's profoundly protective in the first instance. It's an it's amazing, extraordinary capacity um, that we, we all have. Um, obviously, not everybody's going to, depending on our circumstances and a lot of things, um, develop a dissociative disorder. But there's a sense in which we all dissociate what threatens the attachment bond to our caregivers. So the broad rule of thumb in this area would be the more we have to dissociate to, to survive and to maintain that bond, it'll protect us in the first instance. But if the underlying reason for it over time is not resolved, um, it'll, it will impair our ability to, to function and connect with others. So it's a very, yeah, very challenging, intriguing, fascinating, important dynamic um, dissociation that we do need to understand. Um, and I, I guess here I just want to mention too Frank Putnam's great book that came out in 2016 called The Way We Are. And in it he um, puts forward what he calls a state theory of personality, which is really interesting because he points out that you know, it's still not common among theories of personality, and we know there's many, many theories of personality which he basically distinguishes between developmental and dimensional approaches, which are quite different. But on the whole, he's saying they still presume, predicated on a basically stable, enduring conception of personality, you know, fixed, persistent, globally defining traits that pervade the person's interactions with, with the, the world. Whereas by contrast, he advances the state model of personality, which I think is, is very interesting and hopefully will, you know, will start to really um, 
can be um, taken up. And as he said, that allows a far wider range of disparate behaviours, a state theory of personality. And it accounts for the fact, because we're all in different states at different times, um, we all respond differently in different contexts. So the idea of a continuous coherent self for anybody is, is problematic. He says we're all multiple to some degree. Now, that's not, of course, to at all minimise or diminish the situation for a person with lived experience who who has very distinct self-states that, that aren't co-conscious. So certainly if we're talking about DID, it could sound a bit frivolous if I'm just saying, oh, well, you're, you're multiple. But the point Frank Putnam's making is that, of course, and as we know, as, as attachment theorists, neuroscience, as, as even common sense when we think about it, we are, we, we are very different according to context. We all do assume different roles in different contexts. There's our work self, there's our home self. So what determines how functional we are overall is how readily we can segue between different self-states. Um, and of course, if somebody experiences childhood trauma, it's going to be more difficult. There hasn't been that good enough you know, childhood experience to assist movement between the different states, that coherence is a, is a you know, to the extent that we're coherent, is, is a product of, of, you know, our experiences over time and develops over time. We're not born being coherent. So probably getting into a lot of, you know, deep theories about the mind here. But um, I think that's a really helpful way to see things. And how often do we say, you know, oh, that person seemed to act out of character. I mean, all sorts of ways. We, we, we're challenged when people respond to things in ways that seem surprising on the basis that we know them. You know, it's not like themselves. Whereas the state theory of personality can account for that. It recognises that we're, we're often very different towards um, depending on the context that we're in. Um, and th I think this is something we can all identify with and start to perhaps consider dissociation on a continuum. Uh, not everybody accepts that model, but uh, it's, I think what Frank's saying is, is really, really important. Um, and, and it has treatment implications too. I mean, ego state therapy is very interesting in itself. And there's many diverse approaches that utilise ego states. You could say we all have ego states. Also, here is very important is, is Richard Clough's point that, you know, when he's talking about DID and, and structural dissociation, which is the sort of personality d divisions that, that are much more severe um, than sort of less chronic forms of dissociation that the rest, you know, many of us may slip in and out of without it being severe and disabling. But Rich Clough has said that all alters are ego states but most ego states are not alters. So again, we're not saying that this more sort of normal multiplicity model is putting everything in the same basket and it's all equally, not at all. I mean, there's certainly more severe chronic forms, but we can potentially utilise certain treatment approaches like ego state therapy when it's informed by understanding of dissociation and so on to assist clients. So Although um, treatment of dissociative disorders may be regarded as very specialised, and it certainly can be, we're also keen to um, encourage people to think about how models that we may be familiar with without thinking that they could be helpful with suitable supplements and adaptation can actually um, really assist work with, with trauma and dissociation. So that's the second chapter. The third chapter is phase treatment, or basically called revisiting phase treatment. So very briefly on that, um, I think I mentioned before that in 2012, um, the expert consensus guidelines on treatment of complex PTSD. So, of course, the term being used well before the diagnosis came out just recently. And those 2012 guidelines, as I said, came out at the same time as our first guidelines. So we hadn't been able to 
you know, read them at the time. But a number of eminent people in our field, very diverse people, you know, Bessel van der Klog, Mary Lou Coitra, Christine Courtois, Julian Ford, I mean, Bessel van der Klog, a range of sort of key people in the field said, I think it was 85% said they would use a phase treatment approach for complex trauma. And that, that was very much the view and um, that represents, of course, a continuation of, of treatment of, of trauma from the 19th century. You know, it's basically a three-phased model. It's referred to by different terms sometimes, but first phase is stabilisation and safety, which is about assisting the person to feel okay in their bodies, to be able to regulate affect, because it's one of the major things, of course, complex trauma disrupts. The second stage is processing. And, of course, the emphasis in the phase treatment model is that you don't go to processing until the person can can stabilise and manage their affect. And it's not literally like a one, two, three. Of course, it doesn't roll out completely chronologically. But the whole rationale of phase treatment is that you don't go to processing prior to being pretty sure that the person's able to regulate the feeling that processing is going to throw up. Um, and the third phase is the... Um, integration and as I say that the terms are different I think um, Judith Herman talks about remembrance and mourning and James Chu talks about early middle and late phases but basically that phase model has been around for a very long time the tripartite model and in 2012 it was endorsed um, very clearly but since 2012 and this is why we needed to take account of it in the updated guidelines um, a number of therapists <clears throat> and researchers and clinicians, mainly from the exposure school, have challenged the, the phase treatment model. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, in terms of research, and we'll get on to evidence-based treatment in a minute, hopefully, um, is that it's been difficult for a lot of reasons to have outcome studies around trauma and certainly complex trauma. One of the reasons being the exclusion criteria have been very restrictive. So the most severely impacted people who we're wanting to get more refined approaches to assist have been excluded from, from outcome studies. So that meant that, that we in the field could say um, quite rightly, well, you know, our cohort is not being looked at in, in, in um, outcome studies. That's starting to shift now. And Bethany Brand, who, of course, who, um, you know, the treatment of patients with dissociative disorder study, it's a, a fabulous international study around dissociative disorders, and that's in the process um, of being prepared for an RCT. So, again, things are... Are moving on but basically um, a group of therapists have challenged the phase model and these are the people who endorse the so-called evidence-based approach which sounds great and who, who would you know disagree with that at one level but in fact usually relates to short-term exposure-based you know what are called first-line trauma focus there's a few terms that can be a bit confusing when, when I first heard the term trauma focused I thought oh that's great they're focusing on trauma but in fact it's a more particular approach and what these first line evidence-based treatments have in common um, generally is, is taking issue with the phased approach and thinking we don't need a, a first phase stabilisation. We can go straight to processing. And the rationale for that, and there is some rationale, we're not saying phase treatment is beyond criticism, or we'll get to that in a minute too, but the approach, the rationale for that is that if we spend too much time or even at all doing stabilisation, we're withholding, you know, very helpful evidence-based treatments can assist people more effectively and, and efficiently and quickly and so on. So that sounds very good on the face of it, but it fails to recognise what, what many of us would say the more distinctive features of complex trauma is that um, people with complex trauma start in a very different position than people who, you know, may have anxiety or even single incident trauma. Um, and certainly if, if a clinician isn't savvy about round dissociation, 
that they can miss signs of it and it's possible for the client to be triggered by and within the the treatment itself so when we hear about prolonged exposure in particular that's another one that oh you know this is all great prolonged exposure is recommended there's a lot of of, um, approaches that will say that there's a lot of research there but we're wanting to draw people's attention well there's many of us in the field too who say well we're not so sure about that and there are studies around that too so we've put that in the guidelines Um, judith herman uh, said, I think it was in 2009, very explicitly, what one does not do in the early phases of therapy for complex trauma is any form of exposure therapy, and the emphasis is on any. And Peter Levine, who's a very different um, clinician and, and researcher in some ways, but he, T2, in his fantastic book, Trauma and Memory, has been quite critical of, um, of exposure therapies and certainly prolonged exposure therapies for, um, for trauma in general, much less complex trauma. And he makes use of that wonderful, you know, the image of the Greek myth of um, Perseus and fighting the Medusa when the goddess Athena um, advises Perseus not to look directly into the eyes of Medusa because he'll be turned to stone. You know, Medusa, the sort of gorgon with all the tentacles coming out of her head. So, And she advises him to use a shield. So when Perseus fights the gorgon Medusa, he's reflecting the face in the shield rather than looking directly at her. I think that's a lovely way of conveying the concern that many of us have about exposure therapies, which is about going straight in, you know, looking at the eye of the storm. And there's also questions about what, what we're even exposing people to. I mean, complex trauma is about interpersonal violation and betrayal often. It's not about spiders and simple phobias. That's another point Peter Levine has made, that that um, exposure therapy goes back to the, it's the 50s, isn't it, with Joseph Wolper, very specific simple phobias. So extrapolating from that to, you know, more current variants and prolonged exposure as if that's the same thing as complex forms of trauma is, is a whole other animal. So, um, yeah, so it is the case that complex trauma people are now being included in more studies, but many people are, the exposure therapists are saying, oh, well, that just shows that it's just as good exposure therapy and first-line treatments and evidence-based, you know, childhood trauma history doesn't preclude you from benefiting from exposure. Well, many of us would have doubts about that so we're looking at that in chapter three now having said that that's not to say as i said that that phase treatment is beyond uh refining or we don't need to to revisit it in in any way basically we are still endorsing it absolutely there has to be some kind of phased approach and you know if you look at some of the critics of phase treatment when you look at what they're actually saying they're implicitly adhering to a notion of phases anyway they might not call it that but it's hard to see how the range of impacts of, of complex trauma in particular cannot be addressed in, in some kind of attempted sequenced way because somebody who can't self-regulate is in a different position than somebody who can. So another important distinction is um, unpleasant and unbearable. I mean, what people are exposed to, obviously, if someone's severely anxious, that's very unpleasant, but it's not quite in the ballpark of overwhelm and trauma, you know, complex trauma-related dissociation, where the dissociations occurred in the first place because it was overwhelming. So we do risk in endorsing, you know, evidence-based treatments with people who do, oh, it's all great for all sorts of forms of, is putting in the same basket what are actually qualitatively different things, arguably. So that leads to the next thing, well, how do we 
where do we go from here then? And that is this whole kind of notion of new quote-unquote treatments. Is it possible to integrate some of the insights and, and interventions and approaches of very different um, and sometimes short term, that's that's what's interesting, because into the different phases of phase treatment. So that leads into the next chapter called New and Emerging Treatments, New Quote Unquote, um, and the ones um, specifically look at are energy psychology, um, EMDR, brain spotting, which is a fascinating more recent therapy, clinical hypnosis, and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, which of course is is really taking off and will be, I uh, understand, quite um, readily available for psychotherapy purposes in, in your country. So there's a lot of diverse approaches that are challenging the way we think about what effective treatment looks like. So we're sort of looking at how do all these interesting approaches, many of which do have an evidence base, so we're making a distinction between evidence-based in the sort of standard short-term exposure-based, trauma-focused, so on, and approaches for which there is an evidence base but not necessarily one that's recognised by formal trials or that is in a position to offer formal trials within that stricture. And there are problems within formal research methods too, which we'll get to in a minute. But that's basically what Chapter 4 is about, looking at all these different approaches and how might we utilise, draw on to assist people with complex trauma and do they take account of dissociation and can we assist more effective, um, stabilising, safety, processing. So it's possible, say, um, that it's an intervention of energy psychology, say, I'm just saying that, energy, I'm just pulling that out of the air, there's a million things out there, but energy psychology is quite well evidenced in its own terms. I don't practise it myself, but I know people who do. Um, it's possible that an intervention from that field potentially could assist somebody in phase one, you know, whereas many of us who haven't taken account of some of these so-called newer therapies, which of course they're not new, but depending where we're coming from, so we're really missing out and perhaps unwittingly shortchanging our clients by not recognising just what is out there to, um, yeah, to address challenges, especially around physiological relaxation, which is very challenging, of course, for uh, dysregulation and, and complex trauma clients so we, we all know now that phrase you know bottom up rather than top down or bottom up as well as top down um, a lot of our therapies are still top down um, this is a point that um, Schwartz and Corrigan have made that many therapies for trauma are still protocolized which would be the sort of evidence-based stuff and affect phobic you know so they're still kind of privileging cognition often and not working with the body now that's to some extent, that's changed. We're all aware of the importance of somatic stuff now, of physiological soothing, um, but what that really means is, is quite major in a challenge to some extent to talking therapy. We need to be able to find ways to integrate um, interventions that can assist people physiologically because many would say, and, and of course polyvagal theory, very important, and that's now been um, developed into a into clinical application is now clinical you know polyvagally informed therapies um, and Stephen Porges is an enormously important person and and really interestingly a key exponent of energy psychology has said that you know it's often been regarded as a strange weird treatment but you know, it's it's possibly the case that Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory is providing the evidence base that, that, you know, didn't exist before. So one of Stephen's major contributions is this notion of, of neuroception 
which is, you know, detection of threats prior to awareness. So he's saying neuroception precedes perception, story follows state. You know, what we tell ourselves about our experience, the meaning we make of our experience is actually, um, you know, actually follows our physiological um, response. So that's that's hugely significant. And, and in fact, he uses the phrase, cues of safety are the treatment. Um, so when we're able to recognise that and to integrate um, approaches and interventions that can assist people to soothe and stabilise physiologically, there'll be major psychological benefits. And this is very challenging to, to think about story preceding, sorry, story following state rather than proceeding, but quite challenging to talk therapies. And that also leads to, the, I guess, the final chapter, um, which is evidence-based and the challenge of and for complex trauma. So I've already mentioned the distinction we're making between um, evidence-based and an evidence-based. Um, but the model of evidence-based um, has been criticised. It is conceded even by its most fervent adherence that it does not work for many, many people. Um, it's one thing to have an evidence-based treatment, but translating that clinically is a whole other ballgame. There's many people who are missing out um, in terms of effective treatment if we were to hold you know, the only standard to use is evidence-based treatment. I think that's, that's an obvious point for many of us, but perhaps not obvious for others who are working from different perspectives. And Stephen Porges has, has talked about a top-down bias in medical research, which is a fascinating point. So it's not just, you know, we therapists who are saying this, towards the bias towards sort of measurement of, of, of motor um, fibres at the expense of sensory fibres. And he, you know, obviously his work is around the vagus nerve, which uh, he says approximates 80% of sensory fibres. And yet a lot of the emphasis, you know, in the laboratory in terms of formal studies and medical research is, is does in fact contain a bias towards um, the emphasis on motor fibres rather than at the expense of sensory fibres. So this raises a whole interesting issue, Emma, of what we're even talking about with with evidence for you know psychological therapies the more we take account of, of the body and the importance of somatic approaches the more we take seriously top down sorry bottom up as well as top down approaches the whole issue of, of what effective psychological research um, even is is is, um, is raised and this is a point that Bruce Eckers made um, that David Grands made um, talk about phenomenological rigor that clinicians and clients have access to in terms of real-world fluctuating changes and states within the therapy room rather than something abstractly measured, you know, in, in a top-down way that's biased um, in the ways that, that Stephen Porges describes. So um, it's very interesting. It's, it's very dynamic, the field. And... Um, yeah, we're basically just wanting to um, distill. I mean, a lot of it's sort of summary, but it's, it is research. There's a lot of references, and um, we're hoping it will encourage people to yeah become aware of, of dissociation and you know some of the variety of approaches that are out there and how they might be responsibly utilised within treatment of complex trauma. And I guess that's the next phase that we're looking at is how to do that. You know, how can we draw on um, approaches that are perhaps very alien to us but which um, perhaps do accord with the principles of polyvagal theory, you know, the neurophysiological foundations of affect and how we integrate those into a phased model to 
yeah, to safely, um, potentially safely accelerate treatment, but not in the sort of short-term traditional way, if that makes sense. So That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing with us. It's very exciting, isn't it? It's a very exciting time, I think, for our field, yeah. It's a huge thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you tell people you where the link is the that link they can find it? Sorry, the link to the guidelines? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Um, so it would be www.bluenot, B-L-U-E-K-N-O-T.org.au. That's the general link to, to Blue Knot Foundation, but pretty quickly you'll find a link to the guidelines, which are downloadable free of charge or also available in hard copy for um, a small charge. So we do want this information to be readily available and accessible. I'm sure you'd agree, Emma, and, you know, it's just so important that we're aware of this complexity, but also that there's ways of making sense of it and ways of making more, working with it more effectively than we've known how to do before. Thank you so Thank much. You. Not at all. Very most welcome, and thank you for your work. <laughs> I always listen to your podcasts and very much enjoy them, and they're fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Emma. Thank you for your time. I very much appreciate it. Not at all. Hope to talk to you again. Oh, thank you. You you were amazing. You provided such a great overview of all of it, and gave such information and the research behind it, and helping people connect the dots between what you're presenting and the theories and where it's all come from and the need for it. And it's it's interesting because I feel like, in a way, in that neuroception kind of way, the community has felt a need for it. And mm. and now it's, it's sort of been almost in a almost in that attachment repair kind of way. It's it's almost validated that need when the research mm. comes into place and says, no, this is this and this is this and why we are pulling it all together. There's a great way to put it, Emma. It is, it's, it's bringing together. Like there's so many insights and, you know, so much now available and we need to make those links and draw on, on, you know, what we can use to really help and assist. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and there's, there's layers and layers of, how powerful it is in the different ways that it's powerful. It's such rich content. It's such important history and the research being all pulled together in that way. And then it's just powerful in how it's applied. There's just so many layers to it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us with System Speak, a podcast about dissociative identity disorder. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes, or follow along on our website, www.systemspeak.org. Thanks for listening.